You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the US-China Trade War podcast with me, Finbar Birmingham, on the political economy desk here at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. Another busy week as Beijing and Washington continue to trade jabs just over a month out from the US presidential election. The tussle over TikTok continues and China chose this week to issue a very clear warning to American firms in the mainland that it is not going to take this lying down. 15 months after it was first announced, China finally produced details of its unreliable entity list, which would essentially be a blacklist for the unfortunate foreign firms who are named on it. No company names have yet been divulged, but there's rampant speculation, particularly in the state press in China, that it could be furnished with US companies like FedEx, Cisco, Apple, Boeing, and even the British bank HSBC. This would ban the firms from trading or investing in or with China it has the potential to be huge. But domestically, China has challenges of its own. It continues to be pummeled by food security issues. Typhoons and floods have flattened corn crops in the rural northeast. And even as the government warns people against wasting food, it continues to claim that there will be record harvests this year. Something doesn't add up. John Carter and Joe Shin, our political economy editors, will, as ever, frisk those fascinating issues for us on the show today. While in the second half, you'll hear an interview with Shazad Kazi, who's the managing director of China Beige Book, an independent analysis firm which this week launched a report claiming that despite official numbers showing that the Chinese economy has bounced back strongly from the coronavirus shutdowns at the start of the year, they reckon it's still in a year-on-year recession. Interesting, controversial stuff and lots to get through. So get comfortable and let's dive right in. Joined today on the last Friday of September by John Carter, Joe Shin, political economy editors here at the SCMP. Um, it's been another eventful week. Uh, last Saturday, just after our last podcast came out, uh, China released more details on its unreliable entity list. Um, for those who haven't been been watching, that was uh, something that was first floated 15 months ago. Um, it's seen as a way to punish foreign firms for violating China's law for harming national security and so on. But in general terms, it's widely seen as retaliation for US actions against Chinese interests. Reports from the mainland media have suggested that US firms like Qualcomm, Cisco, Apple and Boeing may be included FedEx has been named, as well as the the British headquartered bank HSBC in response to their perceived treatment of Huawei. John Carter, this was first mooted way back last April. I remember reporting on it at the time when the US was at the time uh, unveiling plenty of measures against Chinese firms such as Huawei, such as CTE. And it seems now that uh, the Chinese have decided to release some details on this list uh, as the US has targeted Chinese tech interests in the likes of TikTok, WeChat and so on. Is this being seen as a direct retaliation for that latest wave of punitive action? Yeah, I think that there is a growing sense in Beijing that uh, the U.S. is going to continue to sanction Chinese entities, and uh, it we they wanted to get 
out the idea that they can do the same, that, that this is not a one-way street, that China can also punish uh, U.S. or other foreign entities. I mean, the, the Ministry of Commerce has made it very clear uh, that this is not intended against any one country or any one company, uh, but it seems clear it's a direct response to what the U.S. has done in punishing Chinese companies. Yeah. And Joe Shin, 15 months, we waited to have a bit more detail on this. I remember back last year, they, they were saying if the US follows through with tariffs and all uh, Chinese goods, then this is what they're going to pull out of the drawer. But the, now is the time they've gone with this. Um, does this signify that we're at a, a bit of a, a, a climatic point in US-China relations? Uh, well, it's uh, the unreliable list from Beijing, entity list from Beijing is very interesting because, as you said, you know, it took 15 months for them to draft such a simple uh, regulation. And the word is so vague. Basically, it's a, any company that uh, violates China's uh, sovereignty can be put on that list. Or, you know, they cut a business relationship with uh, Chinese uh, counterparts, not based upon market principle, can be, you know, qualified for this list. So, so, however, I, uh, this, this being said, I'm, I think China is not ready to actually uh, to put any company on that list. This, uh, the, the time, the long period for Beijing to draft this regulation shows reluctance of uh, the Chinese government or eternal debates. Uh, about you know how to proceed with this. Uh, when they announced they got, they're going to do draft this list, it's uh, happening in uh, April or May last year. That was the zenith of the trade war. You know, uh, China was taking a tit for tat approach against Trump's uh, uh, tariffs. Uh, but the 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 contest is completely different now because for now China is trying very hard to play a friend to put a friendly face to foreign investors, to European businesses, to U.S. businesses. As we can see, you know, from Xi Jinping to uh, Vice Premier uh, Hu Chunghua and to the Commerce Ministry, they are trying very hard to say, like, okay, our market will be open. We still mean for business, you know, uh, uh, you know, our, our market will be open wide and wide. This is kind of the messages. So I don't think, you know, uh, to use this unreliable entity list to frighten the foreign business community <laughs> has any a uh, good point for this China's broader strategy. Yeah, uh, but the things like it seems like already the you know the chill factor is is built into this. I mean, the moment you announce something like this, then businesses and investors will get spooked. And and John, we saw that this week in the HSBC share price. I mean, HSBC can't catch a break these days. And you can tell us a bit more about that. Well, HS, HSBC is in an uncomfortable position between the West and, and China. Um, and this week, uh, first of all, um, was the announcement of the unreliable entity list. And they are perceived as being one of the prime candidates to be first on the list. And in fact, the uh, Global Times, the tabloid associated with the People's Daily, named them as one of the likely candidates. Uh, so this is weighed on HSBC, but also the new report uh, by international investigative journalists that uh, a number of big banks for years have been laundering uh, money, have been um, uh, doing basically illegal transactions worth trillions of dollars. And HSBC was one of the big names on that list. So they've been hit twice. Um, it's this has resonated um, a lot, particularly here in Hong Kong, um, because a lot of Hong Kong investors hold HSBC stock and depend on its dividend. 
Um, so now that the, the value of the stock has gone down substantially, almost 40%, um, people are hurting and they're wondering what's going to happen next. Now, this arguably is a reason for Beijing not to put the bank on its list, uh, but we'll wait and see. They have been accused of helping the United States, providing the United States with information that uh, that led to the imprisonment or the uh, arrest of the Huawei CFO in Canada waiting extradition to the United States. Hmm. Um, and so they are blamed for helping this whole process, which China objects to strenuously. Yes, um, that's an interesting one. I'm going to ask Joe Shin about now in a moment. Um, the One of the things, things that's defined uh, HSBC's actions over recent months, I guess, the last year in Hong Kong is, has been trying to sort of build bridges with the Chinese, with the Hong Kong government. We saw Peter Wong, the regional CEO, sign a petition in support of the national security law. Um, you know, HSBC has invested heavily in China and trying to, to break that market. Joe Shin, in this case, it seems as though it's not working. Um, as somebody pointed out to me in, in the instance, in, in this, there's, there are mirrors here with the Disney situation and that the, these businesses are bending over backwards to try and please the Chinese government, but they're really not, not hitting the mark there, Joe Shin. Uh, well, I think they have a point to say that, you know, uh, the best of time for HSBC in China may be over. But I think it's also an overestimation or an exaggeration to say that, you know, HSBC has completely lost the favor of China and that China has found no use in HSBC. So if, if you know, I will, if there's a bet, you know, whether Beijing will put HSBC on the unreliable entity list for the next six months, I will bet my whole life saving, which is not much, I'd uh, <laughs> to say no. Okay. Okay. Uh, but you know, in maybe in five years or ten years, you know, this bet maybe I will take the bet if the bet is uh, a dinner at the Mandarin Oriental. But the bet I will still bet no. Why is HSBC being mentioned as a potential candidate? John alluded to the situation with Meng Wanzhou uh, and Huawei. You've been reporting on this extensively. Give us a bit of background on that. Okay. Yes, because HSBC lost a favor in uh, China. Uh, a kind of public relations crisis because of the handling of the uh, Huawei. And for Chinese media reports and for m many people, it is because HSBC has sold out Huawei to the US government. That's a perception. Whether it's true or not, the percep perception is there. And it's up to HSBC to fix that uh, problem and to prove that, to prove to Beijing saying, you know, we are just uh, like, uh, like any other bank, just uh, following the... Um, following the compliance rules. You know, we can't really fight against the uh, U.S. government. And whether Beijing will take this, uh, will take HSBC's combination is, uh, is another issue. But uh, however, let, let's let's put ourselves in Beijing's position to imagine like, okay, if China really wants to shut down HSBC's China operation or really want to cut off all the business relationship with HSBC, like, what's the benefits for China? You know, that's why I think even despite the global time, CCTV, uh, even during the, uh, you know, the heyday saying, you know, HSBC a traitor, the selling of uh, Meng Wanzhou, blah, blah, these kind of uh, conspiracy series going on. The Chinese government has been relatively quiet. Mm -hmm. From the China China banking regulator, they didn't say anything. China's, uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, um, China's uh, or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or Ministry of Commerce, 
uh, National Development Reform Commission, all these ministries that have the rights to rule over uh, HSBC has been uh, has been relatively uh, quiet. And this this tells us something. I mean, uh, for China, which is trying very hard to uh, stay, you know, connected with uh, with the rest of the world, both in terms of economically, trade flows, and financial. I think China is not in a position to really uh, single out HSBC and punish mm-hmm. the bank. Certainly would be an explosive move. Um, another big issue uh, over the past few weeks and months has been food security in, in China. We've had some big stories on this over the past fortnight. Uh, one of our reporters, Orange, traveled to rural China to report on a pretty poor harvest um, following typhoons and floods that that really hit the nation's corn belt. Um, we've seen uh, corn prices spike to an eight-year high. We've seen imports spike to a three-decade high. All the while, uh, President Xi Jinping and other top Chinese officials are warning about food security. Um, uh, John, this has really been an issue which we've talked about over over the past couple of years a lot. Food security is obviously not a new issue in China, but in recent weeks it seems to have reached somewhat of a crescendo. Well, you have two... uh two major themes playing here. One is food security itself. I mean, you have 1.4 billion mouths to feed, and so you need a lot of food. And China sets three grains as their strategic grains. So you have corn, rice, and wheat. And corn, about a quarter of all corn is, is produced in the northeast of China, which was hit by unusually inclement weather, three typhoons in two weeks, plus a massive flooding. Our reporter was able to see entire cornfields leveled or, um, or badly damaged. And, and the, um, the Chinese government is continuing to say there will be a record harvest this year. Uh, but local farmers are skeptical of this uh, because of uh, the damage that's already been done to their crops. And so this, again, plays into the phase one trade deal. Mm-hmm. As you say, China is buying a lot of, of food products from America in order to satisfy the phase one trade deal, but also because it has a domestic need for them. They said all along as part of the phase one trade deal that their purchases would be uh, gauged by domestic demand. And domestic demand is going up because of higher prices, because of a lower supply. And so they're buying a lot more corn from the United States than they did previously, as you mentioned. Yeah. And Joe Shin, I mean, we on the podcast have discussed um, food security in the past. Uh, in our reporting over the past few years, it seems to have been one uh, mini crisis after another in China with uh, African swine fever, then potentially um, the lockdowns and coronavirus and the inability to, to move food between provinces. Now you've had the inclement weathers, the, the weather uh, events, the typhoons and floods, as, as John mentioned. Where does this sit with you in terms of like historical um, series? Is this is this something seismic, or is this sort of par for the course? Every few years, you're going to have a number of crises in China's food supply. Well, I think it's too far to say that there's any like food crisis or like grain overall grain shortage. Uh, in China, because as you said, China is so big, so every year that's just the floods uh, and the typhoons here and there. But still, there are structural uh, changes that we should uh, pay attention to, especially in China's uh, seas. You know, because China has made a, a policy, remember two years ago, because China was fighting the trade war with the uh, United States and want to cut lines on imports from so- of soybean imports from the United States. And so it, it basically launched the policies, encouraged people to switch from uh, corns to soybeans. And then, it, of course, it has side effects of cutting the corn uh, output. 
and corn as a strategic uh, grain, which is uh, widely used in animal feed. People in the market can feel that the supply shortage of uh, of corn, and so this uh, price inflation is spreading to wheat. During the summer, we also have the journalist in Henan, you know, visiting uh, wheat farmers, and the wheat farmers are feeling that the prices are going up. They're not willing to sell their uh, Grain out of it to the state reserve system, and a similar thing happening in the in the in the coal in the coal industry in northeast because people are expecting that prices will rise higher, as Orange One, our reporting uh, in uh, in Heilongjiang, has found. So uh, I think this uh, the government has uh, has a point to blame the speculators for the price in, in for the price inflation for blame the speculators for that. Uh, but behind these speculations, there is also a kind of fundamental changes. Of course, we do not have a third-party uh, auditing systems to verify all the government's uh, grain output data. Mm-hmm. But the people can only see from anecdotes or from around themselves that there are a, a real kind of shortage concerns about a corn output. And I think this is uh, this is something to be. Uh, uh, we, we can pay attention to in future as well to see how this autumn harvest will be. The, the Chinese government is saying this uh, this harvesting autumn will be great as well. You know, we will be another historic, likely to be another another historical high. Mm-hmm. However, the concerns are increasingly, uh, um, you know, among 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 people in the industry. Like, how could you have? Good harvest one year after another for like seventeen years consecutive. Yes, so seventeen years. Of course, there are some uh, nat- natural doubts, and especially when you see, uh, you know, hundreds of acres of cornfields being flattened by typhoons, as we have reported. So there are naturally some some concerns, there. but it's still too too early to to say. However, I think um, inflation in food, in grains, in in corn, or in wheat uh, are, are on the way. Yes, we, well, that, that's been an issue for the past year. Obviously, CPI was rising all through last year, largely due to um, meat prices because of the African swine fever crisis. Um, and John, like what Joe Shin's there uh, saying there, um, people are generally a bit more sceptical about Chinese data at the moment. Um, we had a report in, in the second half of the podcast. Our listeners will hear from China um, questioning the economic recovery in, in China. We'll see the, the Purchasing Managers Index coming out next Wednesday, which will give us the first snapshot of um, how the economy was in September. But the general trend looks positive. But do you think that there is a bit more uh, scepticism than there has been in the past? Yes. And you go back to the second quarter growth number, the 3.2%, and you had a number of prominent analysts questioning the data, whether that was possible, given how much of the economy had shut down uh, by the government's own admission. And so how do you get the year-over-year growth of 3.2% when much of the uh, economy that was operating a year ago is shut down? And so there was a great deal of skepticism over that 3.2% number. Um, and now there's a skepticism over the, uh, the food security numbers, the idea of a record harvest when you know that there has been serious damage to your corn crop. So, yes, there's more skepticism than there has been in the past. Um, so we'll see. I mean, we have to wait and see uh, what the new numbers show. Um, the expectation is that third quarter growth will be better than second quarter growth and that China is likely to be the only G20 country to report positive growth for the full year. Um, again, is that real or is that man-made, as uh, uh, former Premier Li Keqiang said? We don't know. Uh, we are forced to 
pay attention to the government data. And but there are are other views out there, like what Beige Book will tell us. Yeah, indeed. And of course, there are non-government surveys as well. We look out for the Tyson uh, PMI as well, which, but they're also positive. I mean, it's not not like it's only the government who's saying this is um, that things are improving. And I think the general trend is improvement, even if you don't believe the the exact scale of the improvement. Um, Jushin, what are you looking out for? It's going to be, we're coming into a holiday period in uh, Hong Kong and in China over the next fortnight. Um, What's, uh, is this going to be a bit of a lull in political an economic activity in China? Uh, well, uh, um, this uh, upcoming National Day holiday, uh, you know, the Golden Week will be a test uh, to see how, you know, China's uh, uh, private consumption uh, is recovering. And lots of the local governments has been launched to policies to uh, welcome this uh, upcoming uh, holiday season, you know, uh, like uh, tickets, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, you know, many, many places have said, you know, you just come, you don't need to pay pay money to buy tickets to encourage tourism and stuff like that. Still, as, as we as we discussed before, one uh, weak link in Chinese economic recovery is that consumption spending is not catching up with uh, production. And uh, this uh, upcoming first week in October, we'll see whether Chinese consumption are picking up. So this is very important to watch. Indeed, we will take a break from the podcast next week because of the holiday period, but we'll be back in a fortnight and we'll hear all about uh, Golden Week. We'll hear about what else has happened in the intervening period. But for now, John Carter, Joe Shin, thanks a million for joining us as ever. Thank you. Thank you. There are two very different Chinese economic recoveries right now, and Beijing is lying about at least one of them. That was the explosive message contained in a new study released this week by independent research firm China Beige Book. The group interviewed more than 3,000 businesses across 34 sectors in all of China's provinces and regions, and the results about economic conditions this survey turned up, uh, they jarred with the official narrative. I'm joined by China Beige Books Managing Director, Shazad Kazi, to discuss this survey. Shazad, thanks so much for your time today. Give us a few highlights from this report. What were the main takeaways for our listeners? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, you know, there's three broad points that I think are important to make. The first one is uh, that China is not seeing any year-over-year improvement. As a matter of fact, the economy continues to be in an on-year recession. So all the claims that we're hearing increasingly from uh, folks on the street predicting that China is going to see a 5% uh, growth rate this year, year-over-year, quite honestly, that's just pure fantasy. The economy is improving nevertheless. Sequentially, So we saw improvement. We saw a bit of recovery in the second quarter over the first quarter, which was one of the worst uh, quarters in history in our data and official data. And the third quarter has seen sequential improvement over the second quarter. So yes, there is some kind of a momentum building towards recovery, but that is limited on a quarter over quarter basis. Then if we look under the hood, the key thing to understand is there are two very, very different tracks that the country seems to be on. You've got the big three coastal regions, the Guangdong, Shanghai, the Beijing of the world, where you are seeing growth accelerate. And then you've got the inland provinces and the, the, the far-flung western regions, where you're actually seeing on certain indicators growth slow down. And when you look at the year-over-year lens, what you see is a deep double 
digit recession in those areas. So the more prominent high profile areas that are more obvious or more uh, visible to also a Western audience are certainly seeing an improvement and Beijing's narrative about a recovery is most certainly hinged on uh, this the increasing rebound that we're seeing in these higher profile regions. Yeah, I mean, everybody has for for years, of course, been very skeptical about China's official economic data. Says that I mean, nobody's, I suppose, believing the actual. Maybe maybe everybody doesn't believe the exact figures, but I think when my conversations with analysts and with business people, factory owners, and so on in China over recent months has been one of improvement and uh, things of getting back up to speed, although of course, with discrepancies across the country. Where do you think the disparity between uh, your own survey and the official numbers, what, what, where, are you, where are you getting these differences? Where are you getting these differences from? I think the important thing to point out is also, in addition to what we're seeing by geographic dispersions, the, the other key thing is this is very much a supply side story. We are seeing manufacturing leading the recovery in our data we're seeing the property sector leading the recovery in our data. Alternatively, what we're seeing is that retail has finally left contraction territory, so finally some amounts of growth returning. But services are actually rather lackluster. The consumption sector, the other major point that we've been hearing um, is that, well, consumption is starting to rebound, and China's recovery is taking hold because not only is the industrial side doing well, but the, consum- the consumption side is doing well. So when you look at China Beige Book data, that certainly isn't the case whether it's revenues, whether it is sales, whether it's pricing, and the all-important labor market dynamic when it comes to hiring. Services sectors continue to lack uh, the the industrial economy. So this is very much a supply-side recovery, as I said, and that's another big area of difference. It's not so much that we disagree that there isn't a recovery. It's much more important to focus on where the recovery is coming from. And for it to take hold, we're going to need to see the consumption sector really uh, uh, get back up there. Yeah, I mean, and just to, to continue on that theme, I mean, the, the, the official data also shows those trends, Shizad. I mean, the industrial pro, uh, production has far outstripped retail sales in the, in the monthly data dump that we cover. Um, mm. Imports have lagged exports all year and even going back into last year. Um, so, so, but, but where do you, where, why do you think, I mean, is it, is it just a fact of the matter that, is it the fact of the matter that you guys just think that the official numbers are totally fabricated? Um, you know, because as you said, the, the, some analysts are forecasting 5% plus growth for the third quarter. The official figure for the second quarter was, I think, 3.2% year on year growth. But as you suggested at the top of this um, interview, um, the data that, uh, China Beige Book has suggests that um, on output terms and on revenue terms, this third quarter of 2020 is worse than the third quarter of 2019. So is it just a, is it just um, is the point just that the the official numbers are are wrong? Um, I think it's broader than that. To be very honest with you, uh, official numbers don't really get at in in detail the types of. Um, services firms that we're looking at. We're looking at a broad variety ranging from private healthcare providers to B2B firms, hospitality, travel, which of course can be tracked in official data. And then on top of that, we've got a retail component where we're looking at things like apparel sales and car sales naturally and luxuries and so forth, where there's more of an overlap. The, the, re, the response that we walk away with is twofold. A, we're looking at a pretty broad uh, set of economic indicators and economic and, and industries. Um, and are able to point out and say, look, yes, there's a retail comeback and official data naturally 
are we're also in contraction territory for seven months. And finally, in August, uh, we see retail sales enter growth territory, minimal, but nevertheless growing as well. But broad, broadly speaking, um, if you look at the Chinese services PMI, that's, by the way, very heavily impacted by the property sector as mm-hmm. well. Whereas for us, property is a standalone distinct sector. So we're able to isolate and tell you how services industries are doing. The other point, however, it's not so much that it's a problem of official data being just fabricated. I think at times there's a huge problem with the type of analysis and takeaway you get when you look at what either the market is putting out, the sell-side research shops are putting out, or at times other uh, market commentators put out where they take the official data and have these runaway conclusions about some of this massive recovery in the consumption sector, for example, right now, which are just simply not true. And they're not true, just as you pointed out, even when you start digging deep into uh, the official data that are coming out. The most recent data, for example, makes it clear that a lot of the retail sales recovery is really coming from um, money that is being spent by rich consumers on luxuries, for example, um, mm. or, or not, you know, durable goods like cars. Essentials are actually seeing very minimal growth by comparison. That's a story uh, that tells you that there is, again, a two-track recovery happening within the country, even by official data standards. Yeah. The the research community is something I wanted to ask you about. Um, I mean, you guys obviously are sort of a bit of an outlier here. Um, do you feel like there's too much of a move in the in the in this industry to try and predict what the official number will be rather than trying to actually present what the underlying numbers may be? I mean, um nobody wants to be I suppose in mainstream research circles, nobody wants to be the total outlier. And do you feel like that this rule governs the industry to the extent that nobody really wants to verge too far from consensus. That's absolutely right. There is a very, very strong tendency within the industry to try to constantly predict what they think Beijing is going to put out in terms of a headline GDP number and so forth, um, and try to mirror as much as possible the type of consistency at times that we've seen in those numbers. Um, We don't get the alternative side, which is wanting to dig deep and see, okay, well, what is the actual economic condition, the true picture on the ground, which is why, you know, which is what we've been uh, in the businesses of doing. Uh, The other aspect, and this feeds into the larger problem we're talking about, is that when it comes to talking about the Chinese economy, you get these very, um, you know, you get either people who are extremely bullish or you get people turning, you know, extremely bearish on China. So you get these extremes where people are unable to really just drag up more nuanced picture and, 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 and you know, be comfortable working with the gray areas. And mm-hmm. one of the things we talk about always uh, and we say, look, we're not China bulls. We're not China bears. Uh, you know, and we're not in the business of trying to predict official data. Uh, you know, we, we don't have a thesis that we're just building towards. We're out there trying to understand the true economic picture and present that data, and which is why we're so much or so often in contrast with uh, mainstream narratives that take hold, uh, because those narratives are really just uh, you know trying to play that prediction game uh, where there's such lack of visibility and transparency uh, that it's sort of uh, you know it, it's, it's quite frankly a losing game. Yeah, and uh, like just to sort of, I know you're not really trying to chase the official figure or whatever, but in 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 your own uh, firm's research, do you guys think the Chinese economy will will grow this year, or do you think that the recovery is so stunted that it, it will actually still be smaller than it was in 2019? Uh, yeah, so we believe that in 2020 the economy is not going to see any growth, as as talked about in terms of year over year expansion. Uh, that's not going to happen. We are going to continue to see sequential improvement throughout the course of the year, unless, of course, some kind of, uh, you know, outside event takes place, such as a massive 
second uh, wave of the coronavirus, which means that their lockdowns have to be reimposed and so forth. But if that doesn't happen, the economy should gradually recover out of its current morass. Uh, that said, uh, we don't uh, believe that there is going to be on-year uh, expansion. Yeah. Uh, you guys have your chief economist, Derek Scissors, obviously very well known in China's uh, anyone who's followed the China beat for, for a number for any amount of time will know Derek as um, being very forthright. Um, he's a self-described China hawk and his views do carry some weight. Um, I suppose I wanted to ask you, Shazad, in the last few years with the change in political wind in Washington and in, in America, maybe where um, there's more of an, an appetite for this sort of hawkish view. Do you find that Derek's and China Beige Book's views by, um, you know, by product of that, there perhaps is more of an appetite for the research you guys do? You know, the funny thing is, uh, if, if you go back and look at some of our records, we've been seeing, uh, quite frankly, exceptional Chinese data in terms of very, very good economic performance quarter after quarter at a time when the consensus was that the Chinese economy isn't doing too well over the last, uh, you know, over the last few years. So there certainly have been times when we've been, uh, you know, much more positive on China than anybody else. And then maybe have been the only, the only voice of positivity, uh, because again, the focus was on digging up what, what the true condition on the ground is and mm-hmm. presenting the story that the data are telling. Um, so the, the political winds of Washington um, have, you know, don't really play any kind of impact or have, have any kind of impact on, on what we say, what we do, which is why quite often you'll find us being very much kind of consensus, uh, because, again, we drift away from this sort of herd mentality of, of trying to say, oh, China's slowing down, uh, China's not doing too well, or, oh, China's just doing absolutely phenomenal, this is going to be a record-setting year. Yeah, fair enough. Shazad, that's been fantastic. Thanks so much for taking the time and we will catch up with you soon. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's US-China Trade War podcast. I've been Finbar Birmingham on the Political Economy Desk here at the SCMP in Hong Kong. Please take a moment to like, share and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. And for fans of Joe Shin's weekly razor sharp analysis of the Chinese economy, please do check out our Inside China podcast this week, in which he will be analysing another of the important upcoming events in the Chinese calendar, Golden Week, a crucial week in the Chinese calendar, both politically and economically. We'll be back in two weeks because of the holiday. Until then, stay safe, wash your hands, keep your distance, wear your mask, and all the best. For more podcasts from the South China Morning Post, head to scmp.com, where you can hear more about technology, trade, culture, and society.